Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Um, I guess I started a little bit early. I, I was told by many of you that I was live mic'd, and so that's uh, a lesson. Fortunately, I wasn't saying anything bad about any of you. That's uh, probably a good thing. Uh, so thank you, Larry, for uh, texting me. I, this is the way communications work today, and I, and I appreciate it. Uh, we have a really, really fantastic Grand Rounds this morning, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's really an honor to have uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Albert Coe, uh, join us today. Albert's a very busy man these days, and he's been very busy since, you know, since probably uh, mid-January, early January, when he started seeing signs that, uh, that this virus is going to be trouble. I think he identified this way ahead of many of, many of us, many of the scientists uh, in the U.S. and throughout the world. So he knows about this, and he knows about this because of his background. So let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll pass it on to him to uh, share with us about reopening Connecticut as the COVID-19 pandemic evolves and where do we stand. Uh, Albert, uh, I've known Albert for, for, for uh, probably over 20 years, uh, came to my house a long time ago uh, for dinner. Uh, was, I was introduced uh, to him by Dr. Justin Radel, who's uh, my friend and colleague at uh, the University of Connecticut Health Center. Uh, they, and, and spirochetes brought us together. We work in syphilis. He works with uh, leptospirosis. And, uh, and spirochetes bring people together in ways that one never knows. So thank you for the spirochetes, and thank you, Justin, for introducing me. Uh, Albert uh, has an amazing pedigree. He, uh, he bachelor's in chemistry and life sciences from MIT way back in 1981. Uh, then he uh, went to, uh, across, the, uh, across the street uh, to Harvard Medical School where he uh, graduated in 1991. He was a, a resident in internal medicine at the Brigham Women's Hospital, a fellow in infectious diseases at the Mass General, and then a postdoctoral fellow in international medicine at, uh, and went a little bit further south, the Weill Medical College of Cornell. Uh, and, and where he really, uh, you know, took off with his career in international global health and infectious diseases. He's currently professor of epidemiology and medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and the Yale School of Public Health. Uh, and he's department chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Microbial Diseases. Um, Albert's research uh, centers and has always centered on health problems that have emerged as a consequence of rapid urbanization and social inequity, and that's very important. Uh, he coordinates a research and training program of uh, urban slum health in Brazil and is conducting, has conducted for many years now prospective community-based studies on rat-borne leptospirosis, also on dengue, meningitis, respiratory infections, and many others. Uh, his research uh, focuses on understanding the transmission dynamics and natural history of leptospirosis, which is a model for an infectious disease that has, smirge, uh, has emerged in the slums, in this case, the favelas in Brazil, which he, he's an expert in this area, um, and the environments with the interaction with changing in climate change, uh, changing in urban ecology, social marginalization, all problems that plague us today in so many ways, and he's really been a champion for, the, for this. His current research combines uh, epidemiology, ecology, translational research-based approaches, uh, to identify prevention and control strategies that can be implemented in communities. So important with this particular virus that we're dealing with today. Uh, his team has mobilized uh, public health uh, research capacity uh, in Salvador, Brazil, uh, to investigate the outbreak of uh, Zika virus. That was the last uh, epidemic that we had, uh, and the look, look at microcephaly as well. Uh, he's the program director at Yale for the Fogarty Global Health Equity Scholars Program, uh, which provides research and training uh, opportunities for the U.S. Uh, for low-middle-income countries, uh, post- and pre-doctoral fellows that collaborate at international sites. Uh, he has multiple, multiple honors and recognitions, more than 200 peer-reviewed publications. He's a fellow of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, 
fellow of the American College of Physicians, the fellow, fellow of the Infectious Disease Society of America, and now it's a member of the Go uh, Governor's Lamont uh, COVID-19 Task Force uh, to reopen Connecticut. I think that closed and reopened, um, and also a member of the Tri-State Task Force. Uh, most importantly, uh, he is a, a wonderful, warm, brilliant human being um, who uh, it, it's it truly enjoyable to meet and spend some time around. You can really get a sense that he cares about this world, cares about the dynamics of, of people, uh, society, uh, poverty, and how that has affected our world through the lens of an infectious disease epidemiologist. Uh, so I'm uh, very proud and honored to uh, welcome Albert to our Grand Rounds. Uh, I think you will enjoy this very much. And we will have absolutely uh, you know, time for questions at the end regarding this particular topic. So Albert, thank you again. Uh, please take it over. And then we will come back at the end for questions. Dr. Koh? Uh, thank you very much, Juan. And it, it's really a, a, a great privilege and a, a great honor you know, to be talking at this pediatric grand rounds for, for many different reasons. One is, is that you know, this is really a problem in our backyard, in our homes, you know, in our communities. And it is, it's, um, it's a privilege to talk to our fellow citizens, colleagues in the healthcare uh, profession. Uh, but most of all, I think it's just a, the opportunity to, to, to speak at a grand rounds led by Juan, Juan Salazar. And, and also at an institution which includes uh, very close friends like uh, uh, Justin Radoff uh, is, really a, is really a privilege. So with that, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to talk about really um, a very, very, I think all of our lives pre-COVID was very different from what it is now. And that's certainly my case. It's certainly all, all of yours. And so I'm going to focus on what happened to us over the last several months. Uh, and, and particularly in the context of, of how we're not only responding to the COVID-19 epidemic here, here in Connecticut, but also how we're thinking about moving, moving forward and, and where we're specifically at at this point. So next slide, please. So just as a disclosure, I have nothing to disclose. Uh, next slide. Uh, so I'm just, I'll give just an overview. And, and these are, I think, themes that we'll be touching on through the presentation. Uh, one is the features of COVID transmission that present a challenge not only into to addressing or responding to the pandemic, but also to reopening our society and economy here in our state. Uh, I think the second is to think about the pro public health approaches and medical approaches to mitigate the health impacts of COVID you know, as, we, as we reopen. And the third is, is what does our future look like you know, with respect to scenarios and the risk of resurgence. Uh, I'm going to, rather than going through each of these different steps, I'm gonna integrate this by telling the story of, of, of you know, where we came from, where we're at now, and where we're gonna go, be going through, through uh, in the future through the lens of the reopened Connecticut you know, advisory uh, group, which I had the privilege to be a member of, to co-chair with Indra Nui uh, and, and many esteemed colleagues um, at, at the request of the governor. Uh, and, and so let me, I'm going to go ahead and tell that story, which will touch on these, these different themes. Next slide. So thinking about where we came from, and, uh, and I won't go back to, to the beginning of the epidemic. I think that's very clear impression in, in, in all of our minds, you know, with the, with the you know, first transmission events in, in China likely to do to a spillover event in, uh, in, in the city of Wuhan in, 2000, in, uh, in late 2019, probably in November, 
first identification in December, actually confirmation of those cases in early January. I had the privilege also to serve on the uh, WHRND Blueprint uh, Committee, uh, which actually since the beginning of January have had you know, regular, regularly scheduled meetings for the response to this epidemic. And it was at that time, probably perhaps like late January, uh, right after the shutdown of Wuhan in January 25th, the beginning of February, when we had a large global forum uh, on COVID at WHO, that it was really quite clear that this problem will become a pandemic, will be getting out of hand, and we'll have the high mortality and morbidity that we witnessed. And I think here, this is a story for another whole, whole nother grand rounds or, or series of grand rounds. But, you know, what, what happened to us? You know, why did we, we suffer so much during this, the introduction of COVID in our country? And, and why was mortality and morbidity so, so great, particularly in the Northeast? But let me just give you a focus from the lens of Connecticut. So, so we got first warning that there was you know, uh, cases as detected uh, in New York. Uh, the first confirmed case was March 1st. Everyone uh, remembered the outbreak in New Rochelle. Actually, one of my first patients, COVID patients, was a member of that, that, uh, that um, community in New Rochelle that was uh, identified. Uh, we had our first case confirmed in Connecticut on March 8th. Uh, and by then it was clear that we were going to have an epidemic uh, 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 an exponentially increasing epidemic on hand, much like was it, you know, being identified in New York's uh, city uh, by uh, March 10th. The governor, um, you know, using the signals of, you know, widespread community transmission in New York, the increasing cases, uh, declared a public health emergency on March 10th. By March 13th to March 8, uh, 18th, a series of executive orders were put in place essentially around the theme of stay home, stay safe, with restrictions um, on uh, meetings and travel, school closures, and also as we evidence the first, as we re received the first evidence of, uh, of, a, of a massive and, and really uh, devastating uh, outbreak in our nursing homes, restriction on nursing home visits. So those measures, at least in, in Connecticut, were done, you know, fairly proactively, but yet we still had a large burden due to introductions or transmission, likely the sources from, from New York. And <coughs> as we see, you can see on the curves on the right, <coughs> right hand side, both in hospital census, both in, uh, in deaths, we've had exponential growth in the, um, throughout March and into, into April of, uh, of both cases and uh, hospitalizations and deaths. So by eight, April 13th, we had already accrued, had a cumulative 13,000 cases. This is in the context, this is 13,000 cases of the 45, roughly 45,000 cases that we've experienced this pandemic, 602 deaths by April 13th. And at that time, the governor had, um, you, know, uh, you know, strongly felt that we should not only think about how we're going to respond to this epidemic, but how we're going to get back and reopen our Connecticut, uh, uh, given really the important social and economic impacts that uh, stay home, stay safe lockdown you know, was having. For that reason, I remember on, I think it was April 11th, on a Saturday you know, afternoon, I was actually in our pathology department next to the morgue reviewing um, 
reviewing slides of, uh, of uh, spontaneous abortion of a, of a fetus in a woman who had uh, COVID. And I got a call from the governor and uh, you know, asking me to co-chair this with Indra Nui, uh, who was um, you know, kind of one of the esteemed business leaders in the United States, uh, the former CEO of PepsiCo. Um, and he asked uh, both of us to, to serve as co-chairs the reopen uh, kinetic committee. I, I was kind of a little bit flustered. I was in the, you know, I was in the morgue when I got the call, and I said yes. And then it wasn't until several hours later that, uh, as I was walking out of the pathology department, I kind of realized or hit me what what the what the upcoming challenge was. Uh, next slide, please. And, and, and that was a challenge for me because, uh, specifically, as as one had said, you know, all of my life or my, my academic life has really been focused on, uh, on, on that interface between social inequity and urbanization, but much in the context, so global context. Uh, I had actually lived and was stationed working in Brazil for 15 years before I came to Yale uh, in 2010, working in, with the Brazilian Ministry of Health uh, on the emerging public health issues uh, facing urban slum communities, now, many of these are, are non-communicable diseases, such as rising violence, drug, drug use, diabetes, hypertension, uh, non-communicable diseases. But being an infectious disease physician, much of our focus had been on the emerging type of uh, emerging infections that um, uh, impart high disease burdens in these communities. Uh, much of our work is focused on rat-borne leptospirosis, uh, dengue, chikungunya, successive waves of epidemics, most recent being Zika and the uh, Zika-associated uh, birth defects. And, uh, but that experience in Brazil is actually quite important in, ter in terms of, of forming uh, kind of guiding principles that I think were important, not only in terms of, of implementing or visualizing together with uh, Indra Nui and all of her ex expertise, uh, but visualizing what a reopened Connecticut and a just reopened Connecticut um, uh, plan would be, but also thinking about how we could best serve our communities here in Connecticut, Connecticut being probably one of the more inequitable states in the United States, uh, in, in our country. And, and certainly that played out, you know, during the uh, reopened Connecticut, uh, um, uh, during, during our COVID epidemic. Next slide, please. Next, please. So, so this was the Reopen Connecticut advisory group. It was actually a large group that, that you know, combined experts from both the state government together with um, experts outside the um, uh, state government, but actually in comparison to other states, whether it was New York or Massachusetts, or even places like, you know, like Cal California, we kind of did it differently. And what we did is we had a small focus group who are in the yellow. This is our Alex Carnell, Mahmoud Kamoun, Harlan Krumholtz, Charles Lee, director of Jackson Labs, David Shear, Oni Chukwu. And I actually had a focused small group so that we could actually rapidly respond and then have, but yet bring in across different sectors, understanding that COVID, the impact of COVID was not just on health, but on businesses, education, and, and community. So integrating a broad vision, but yet with a very focused group 
because we were actually coming up onto the peak of our epidemic. Uh, you know, on a April 13th, we, we were still about uh, a couple weeks away from the peak that was happening towards the end of April um, with respect to cases, hospitalizations, and, and mortality. So we brought in um, uh, experts on this. I would uh, say special call out to Rick, Rick Levin, and uh, former president of Yale, and Linda Lorimer, also vice president of, former vice president of Yale, who led with Miguel Cordona, the education committee, uh, Marcella Nunez-Smith, who was the, um, uh, who's a professor you know, at Yale, particularly working on issues of social equity, inequity, together with Amy Porter, who co-chaired the uh, community. So that, and this enabled us to calibrate you know, the kind of the hard decisions and balances about a very strong social distancing and lockdown versus really what do we do to take care, best care of our kids who are missing school? What do we do to, for the small restaurant owners, you know, and the small business owners that, you know, who are, who are lo losing money and going out of, out of business during the lockdown? Next slide, please. So we had some guiding principles right up front that we came up with, and this is really the vision of Indra Nui and her ability to, to really think broadly, both in business and economy and society. But one is, is that we wanted to ensure that policies and plans were science-driven to ensure, to ensure safety while we're open. Second is that we protect our citizens who are most vulnerable at highest risk. You know, from, from both not, on, not only the health impacts of COVID, but also the economic and social impacts of COVID. The third is that our healthcare system is ready to handle the needs of patients. As many of you know, and have you experienced in Connecticut Children's, you know, there was really quite large, um, there have been uh, quite large impacts, not only into the, the, the financial structure of our healthcare systems, uh, not only in terms of, being able to take care of our patients who don't have COVID, uh, people who need chemotherapy, dialysis, um, you know, um, well baby visits, prenatal care, but also the confidence, you know, that, that, that the public had, and, and particularly the loss, not necessarily the loss of confidence, but, but the fear the public had of, of healthcare institutions being the focus, uh, being foci of transmission for COVID. Um, the fourth guiding principle is that we need to minimize harm to our economy, speed up recovery, restore Connecticut's quality of life, with, while at the same time protecting public health. And I'll come back to that issue on the second half of the, of the talk. And then we also need to be fully equipped to respond to future crises as in, infection rates rebound. And, and that's very important. Next slide. And I think this is... Um, this is really the features the, that really have made this a very difficult and if not intractable problem that we're, we're facing. And these are the features of COVID, the biology and the epidemiology of COVID, which really are going to impact how we are not only responding now, but how we respond in the future. So first is the high transmissibility of the COVID-19 virus. I think many of you know there's all, you know, estimates of R-naughts are all over the place, but there are also there's quite a bit of variation across different, different settings. The settings that we are particularly concerned about are the densely crowded in, you know, cities you know, in our states where are not maybe much higher than the initial estimates probably that came out of China and that have been reported about 2.5. 2. 2. 
I think the other feature that is really, and we've witnessed this here in Connecticut, are the large outbreaks in congregate settings, particularly our nursing homes, but also our prisons and, and, and workplace, and the high mortality and morbidity that are associated with those outbreaks. Um, I think the third feature is, is that because of the high transmissibility, this is a disease you know, where, where contact rates or contact between individuals drive, the, uh, drive transmission, and this is most problematic in our densely crowded urban centers. This is not only a feature of uh, Connecticut and the Northeast, New York, but all our, you know, our experience throughout, throughout the world. And then those, and particularly in, in, those, in those communities within those cities that are much more, much more vulnerable because of issues of social, social inequity. And I think the you know, question which is still of a debate, and I think many of you heard the back and forth from, from WHO, but I think it, there is a strong consensus that the large number, of inf uh, there's a large proportion of infected individuals, it's likely up to 80%, who have undocumented infections, whether they're pre-symptomatic, oligosymptomatic, or asymptomatic, and that this proportion contributes to the majority of community-wide transmission. And lastly, there was really the high risk. And this is, there was debates early on about, you know, what's the case fatality rate, you know, ratio, what's the case, you know, infection fatality ratio. I think there's a consensus that certainly this is higher than seasonal influenza and even the worst seasonal influenza, that there's a high risk for severe complications and death and that the infection, um, you know, uh, fatality ratio is likely going to be 0.5%, which makes that about 50%, 50 times that what we experience with seasonal, seasonal flu. So those are the features of, of COVID-19, which really pose challenges on how we think about not only controlling, you know, uh, transmission, but also reopening our economy. Next slide. So with that, we still have, and it's, it's you know, incredible with the, the pandemic that we've experienced, the number of deaths and uh, cases and hospitalizations throughout the world that we have still some key knowledge gaps. And I think the first one is, is that particularly for our state, you know, how much transmission had, had occurred during that epidemic. We had 45,000 cases, we had roughly you know, 4,500 4, 4, that occurred, how much of the percent of the population was infected? And uh, what will happen in this whole debate about herd immunity when we reopen? Um, the second is whether transmission is seasonal, whether it increases or decreases in winter, winter and summer. I think you've heard different opinions. I know Scott Gottlieb had gotten on um, earlier and several experts saying that we may have a decrease in the summer if people are outside more we know outside is uh, associated with decreased transmission. We know from other respiratory viral infections that, you know, that transmission is seasonal and many times in the winter, in the drier months. However, I, I've worked in Brazil for, for 25 years and uh, my colleagues from Manaus, probably one of the hottest and most humid places in the world in the middle of the Amazon, had, is still having a devastating outbreak, uh, you know, uh, given the, the temperatures and humidity. And as we're seeing experience throughout the South, you know, that, that there's no hard and fast rules about seasonality. Uh, the third is, is which groups are really reservoirs of transmission? Um, you know, certainly we've oversampled by testing, you know, the, the people who are at most risk for mortality, morbidity, the elderly. But I think the big question is whether young adults and, and perhaps even school children 
contribute to transmission? If so, how much? And how much do they drive community-wide transmission? And if that's the case, then that certainly um, provides a rationale for broad, widespread testing of community-wide testing of all age groups. And then the, the third is also, what are the risk of complications? We're still learning more about this disease. I think you're, you know, the evidence, particularly at your hospital with PIMS or MISC, as well as uh, in younger adults with strokes, you know, arrhythmias, heart, you know, um, cardiovascular uh, accidents or events, we're still learning quite uh, uh, much about the natural history. And I think the big question for us, and as we're thinking, and we're thinking about vaccines as a magic bullet, and we can talk a little bit more about that in the discussion and, and what's the future going to hold, but it's really the nature of immunity after, after infection, whether people will be reinfected, if they are reinfected, when will that happen? And you know, how many, um, and how, what proportion that will happen in? Um, and, and most importantly, that you know, with antibody testing or serology, whether you know, having antibodies is you know, essentially a back to work certificate you know, or tickets or get out of jail ticket that, that you know, those people can go back to work safely without being uh, at risk of getting the disease, but also without risk of transmission. Those are all key unknowns at, at this point. Next slide. So with those key knowledge gaps, I think these were our initial priorities. And let's think back, this is two months, more than two months ago, this is in the middle of April. But I think you know, when we were really thinking about the plan and, and, and having to plan out months you know, in, in advance where we want to be, not only today, but in the future. So, the, you know, there's several priorities or criteria that we came up. One is that we had to have a sustained decline in hospitalizations. We wanted to roll, have to roll out widespread and streamlined testing of our people uh, so that we can uh, protect them and protect the, the ability to, um, uh, to, to mitigate, detect, but also mitigate outbreaks in, in, in for, further resurgences. Um, the third was to, you know, provide, you know, this is sort of the meat and potatoes of, of public health prevention for a disease like COVID. That's not only testing, but it's really the, you know, the, the action arm is contact tracing and isolation. Uh, you know, if, you know we, if those aren't successful, then actually our, our, our public health interventions will fail. Um, we also, I think, importantly in this, and this gets back to the social equity issues that, uh, that um, uh, Juan had, uh, had mentioned, but you know, we really, the, the people who we needed to protect the people who are most at risk and, you know, for, for this infection um, uh, in, those, in those populations, we have to get our hospitals back up to, to speed and taking care of our patients, not only with COVID, but all of the people, all the healthcare that was put on hold during the epidemic for patients who didn't have COVID. Um, I think, you know, solving the PPE uh, uh, problem, which was a, you know, a problem throughout the United States, not only in our state early on in the epidemic, and then providing safeguards, you know, and guardrails for our businesses, schools, sectors of society so that they could open re re uh, safely in a gradual and a phased manner. Next, next slide. So I'm gonna go through these kind of uh, quickly, but you know, I think, you know, I think the, you know, the large consensus is you know, that testing is gonna be essential and not only testing, but large scale testing. 
in addition to social distancing, use of face masks and best hygiene uh, um, practices, you know, I just want to reemphasize the importance of not only testing people who are symptomatic, but people who are also asymptomatic and oligosymptomatic, so we can decrease the pool of infected in the in the community who can or, or, or sources of transmission. In order to protect our vulnerable populations, we have to we have to screen and test those people who come in contact with them, <clears throat> whether they're in order to protect our nursing home residents, we have to protect our nursing home staff, whether it's protecting the uh, inmates in correctional facilities, we have, to <coughs> we have to screen their staff. And we most of all need to prioritize our cities. We know if we're, that they've been hit, they had the highest, um, what do you call it, the disease burden. Uh, they will also be, sort of, uh, they will be also um, foci of, of further transmission and post possible foci for continued transmission and transmission to other places in the state if we don't do, do our job. And then providing guidelines and, and interventions to expand and prom promote uh, safe testing in easily accessible points of healthcare. And that's important because I think we really got it wrong in the beginning of the epidemic. We, we put in very much like the South Korea model, uh, we put in drive-through centers, which were inaccessible to many of the communities, many of the people who most are at risk of having, having COVID. And we have to do a better job when we, uh, in, the, in the state, and I'll go through some of the plans of how the state's going to do that. Next, next, next slide, please. So much of this, and I'm gonna be calling on the governor's uh, the roadmap of reopening Connecticut from Governor Lamont uh, that was published on May 26. And a lot of the thinking, much of the thinking of the Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group, you know, came in to fuel that, that report, giving recommend, providing recommendations to the governors. But I think, you know, the, the major objective, and I think that one of the key priorities right off the bat for the Reopen uh, Connecticut Advisory Group and the state was to you know, set up and ramp up testing as much as fast as possible. At that time in April, we were about testing maybe about 200 to 400 tests a day, you know, which is roughly about a thousand, a little bit a thousand. We had about a thousand, thousand two hundred tests a week. We're right now, just to cut to the chase, at about 50,000 tests a week. We ramped that up 50 fold in order so we can monitor transmission. Uh, protect the critical and mo most at-risk uh, residents, and, 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 most, and equally importantly, to inform better decision-making about the reopening strategy. Next slide. And in order to do this, and this is a busy slide, and I won't go into the details, but this really, as I mentioned before, um, the first priority back there, back in middle of April, April 13th, was to get our testing strategy up. And we did this by several means. One is to relying on commercial laboratory partners, um, healthcare system, system laboratories, but really creating the infrastructure and the networks here that Connecticut could take care of its own. And that was really led by Charles Lee, the director of Jackson Labs, in collaboration with his partners at, at Semaphore and at Yale New Haven Hospital, so that we don't have to, we didn't have to rely on a national system or a commercial system that actually let us down during the epidemic. And that we would have that structure, not only for this epidemic, but for future epidemics. And that was really quite one of the novel or innovative um, 
approaches uh, stood up by the you know, state government and in the reopened Connecticut Advisory Group. And that was to ramp up testing to a level where we could actually prevent epidemics in the future. And I'll come back to some of the, the, the challenges with doing that at the end of the talk. Next slide. So the, the, the and I think this goes back in why are we doing the testing? And the whole reason for testing are several fold. The first is to reduce the population of asymptomatics. And there's several ways to do that. One is to work backwards by identifying symptomatic cases, testing symptomatic cases, doing contact tracing, and contact tracing in an efficient and rapid way so that you can identify their contacts who may be asymptomatic or presymptomatic or oligosymptomatic at that point. And then isolating those through quarantine such that they're not contributing to trans, uh, tra community-wide transmission. One of the key links, and perhaps almost the Achilles heel, is that contact tracing is a laborious process, time-consuming uh, process for many different reasons, many different uh, process reasons. I think one of the things that you know, let us down during the epidemic is really our, our health informatics you know, infrastructure, not only here in Connecticut, but throughout the, the country. So for that reason, we, we need to reduce that pool of infecteds in the community, not only focusing on symptomatic cases, but by doing the large-scale screening, which was one of the recommendations of the uh, um, <coughs> you know, Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group. The, sec this, the third arm of that is, is that, and we've all seen that as physicians, patients were fearful or didn't have access to testing during the epidemic, they, they were told to stay home without symptoms. We kept them out of the hospitals to protect our hospitals. They got critically ill at home. Many of them died at home or died on the EMS transport there uh, without even knowing what the COVID di uh, diagnosis was. This was certainly a problem in Boston and, and in New York. And, you know, so therefore we not only have to test, we're gonna have to actively monitor people who go undergo isolation for clinical symptoms, and if they get those trigger points, that means that they have to come into the hospital early rather than late, as which what happened during, during an epidemic. And we really need to get that part right by linking contact tracing, testing, contact tracing, and, um, and active monitoring uh, together in that scheme. Next slide, please. So this is just to reinforce who are the people that we're most concerned about when we're thinking about these interventions in the context of testing, contact tracing, isolation. And as many of you know, the, you know, our hit state was hit hard, like all of the ones in the Northeast, particularly in the nursing homes. Almost 50 to 60% of our deaths occurred among nursing home residents. 11% of all nursing home residents died due to COVID during, the, during, during our epidemic. Um, you know, with that, you know, like in other congregate settings, we've had outbreaks, perhaps not as bad as other states like Michigan, Ohio, and so forth. We have outbreaks in our prison systems and for important, you know, social justice reasons, testing there is, is a priority. We also need to test the, the groups that are most at risk for the disease. And those are our people of color, where hospitalization rates and death rates were two to three times that of our, uh, in our black and our Latino population populations than there were in our white, white populations. Next slide, please. I think importantly, I think what we've learned about this epidemic is that this is a disease which is, which is 
you know, um, associated with, you know, small or minimal risks to children, to young adults, and to middle-aged adults, and that much of the burden are, are among our elderly and those who have comorbidities. I think the jury's still out, whether it's comorbidities that are driving this as a causal factor, or whether it's age and immunosenescence. But regardless of that, we have over 1 million residents in Connecticut who have uh, multiple, who are, you know, either elderly or over 65 years of age where case fatality rates go up exponentially or have, you know, um, who have two or more comor underlying comorbidities that place them at risk um, for, um, for COVID. And, and thus the importance in our population, in, in our demographic population structure of really getting it right with respect to testing and, and targeted testing. Next slide. And doing this, I, I think, you know, there's several themes, but there are specific themes that we need to do. We have to make sure that, particularly in our nursing homes, that we have rapid responses and that we, you know, um, you know the, these outbreaks, by the time they were investigated, many of the places had over 50% attack rates. They had, you know, uh, as I mentioned, 11% of our deaths, 11% of all nursing home residents died. And we need to act more re rapidly the team, the, the state is doing that with mounting a rapid response team and, and, and frequent monitor, um, screening, weekly screening of nursing home staff as well as residents, staff to protect transmission, spillover transmission to the residents. I mentioned the importance of, of prisons and mentioned the importance of populations. Next, next slide. In doing this in a way that is effective. And as I, I highlighted before the importance of why we need to do active clinical monitoring. Why our healthcare systems, you know, need not only to test and diagnose, but to follow people throughout um, the, their isolation, whether they become symptomatic or whether they become symptomatic with, with trigger complications or trigger signs and symptoms that require more intensive um, uh, medical care in the hospital setting. But the other is, and I think this was an important point that you know the the state certainly took care. Uh, uh, took into, uh, uh, has prioritized, is that we in COVID can be in a situation like I was part of the, you know, my training was during the HIV epidemic. We, I remember what it was like to have an HIV test before we had therapy. You can imagine with COVID, it's a very, certainly a very different situation, but you can imagine with COVID about, you know, how we have, um, we have, uh, you can imagine, what is the incentive for somebody to get tested if they know that they and their whole family are gonna be on lockdown in isolation for the next two weeks, especially if they have to take care of uh, their children, of their, the elderly, uh, they're the caregivers, especially if they have to work and they have loss of uh, employment, especially if they come from our most vulnerable communities. Next slide. So, so I think, um, and I'm gonna skip this one. Um, uh, Please, next slide, just for the time. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and I think it's all clear to us that if we're gonna think, and one of the important criteria is that we secure not only our supply chain, but we restore confidence in our healthcare systems and uh, uh, by doing that. And that's not only making sure that we have PPEs, that we have you know, surge crisis protection and uh, contingency plannings, but that we also, Make sure that our healthcare, uh, our patient population, healthcare uh, worker staff are screened and uh, free of COVID, 
such that we can have our people, you know, patients who need chemotherapy feel secure that they come back. And this is all in, within the, the, the plans that the state has, has laid out. Next slide. And I think before transitioning to the, the last part of the talk, I wanna just talk about, I think, you know, we don't know when the resurgence will come, but we're certainly worried about the winter where we already go into surge crisis with influenza, you know, without COVID. And if we have concomitant uh, epidemics of seasonal influenza and COVID, we will be in a critical uh, situation. And so there's a clear rationale the state is, uh, that the state is taking up to prioritize influenza uh, immunizations for all our citizens. And that's something that's being planned right now so that in the fall, we're gonna have an intensive influenza campaign that will reach all sectors of our society not only to protect our citizens from influenza, but to protect our hospitals from surge crisis. Next slide. So let me go into the last part of the talk, which is that, you know, and we're all healthcare professionals, I'm, I'm an infectious disease physician, epidemiologist. Many of our concerns are health related and, and we can come up with the most stringent public health, you know, recommendations and inter interventions, but that doesn't make sense if that's at the risk of people losing their jobs at, at increases of domestic violence, you know, whether you know, it's child abuse, it's keeping children out of school where they can't learn, those long-term impacts that we have on society by the actions that we take in public health. So the whole key issue with the reopen Connecticut um, you know, uh, plan and uh, development of the plan was to really calibrate what are the costs and benefits on the public health side with the costs and benefits of the economic side? And uh, I'm not an expert on this, so this part, but that's why we relied on Indra Nui and all of her expertise and a really well-formed business uh, committee, which or econ economy committee, which represented all sectors of society, as well as occupational health experts who could give the best, you know, best recommendations. Next slide. So I'm going to go through these very. Uh, quickly, but I think just you know what 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 COVID has meant for states, and these are kind of outdated numbers. These are probably a month old. This is uh, these impacts are much higher. We have over half a million unemployment uh, claims. We had probably a five percent decrease in our state uh, gross domestic product. Um, we had significant impacts on 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 children by not being able to complete their schools. Next slide. Uh, we came up with a system to, to um, what do you call it, really prioritize what sectors of society would open. As you could see that much, almost half of, of Connecticut during lockdown was still going. So the economy was still working. What our focus was, was how to get that other half uh, up and running, and particularly those that were most vulnerable. You could see that, you know, among the total state GDP, um, closed non-operational um, you know, businesses such as restaurants, salons, or small businesses make up a small part of the GDP, but they made a, a over almost half of the unemployment claims. And, and that's the issue of vulnerability. Next slide. So I don't, I won't go through these metrics. Next slide. But we actually used metrics uh, that, that, you know, that looked at the correlation between the public health risk of reopening and the economic benefit of reopening. And this is what enabled us to come up with that plan, which I think many of you from Connecticut are now very familiar, the phase one, phase two, phase three, and really trying to maximize the 
you know, the, um, what do you call it, the impact or the positive benefits of opening sectors, specific sectors of the economy, together with minimizing the public health risk, uh, risks. Next slide. And much of this is laid out uh, in the governor's plan. Many of you are already aware of this. We've already gone through phase one with opening outdoor restaurants, non-essential retail, offices where work from home is not possible. Uh, next slide. Uh, we're now um, have gone into phase two, uh, you know, as of June, uh, June 17th. Uh, I'm sorry, let me, I think, can you go back up a slide? Hmm. Okay, there's a slide missing, but there's a phase two slide. And, uh, and oh, I'm sorry, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. This is phase two, and we hit all our benchmarks and criteria for reopening, you know, phase, you know, to into phase one. We've, we've hit our benchmarks except for one, and I'll come back to that, to opening phase two. Uh, this is actually June, June 17th, and this is the selected youth um, sports. Um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, you know, summer schools, you know, our community colleges, and and actually the state is coming up with uh, improved metrics at this point. You know, looking at the data so that we can think about what, how to open up to phase three. Next slide. So, um, and I'll uh, I'll skip this slides, but well, let me keep this slide for a second. I just want to say this is all in the context that we want to have our most vulnerable and those over sixty-five and those with you know, comorbidities, staying home, staying safe uh, during this process so that, that we could, you know, so that you know, we can shelter those who have highest risks. Uh, the importance of wearing face masks, I think there's a, there's a consensus now that face masks, whether cloth or whether surgical masks worn by the public are important to protecting transmission, uh, uh, you know, person-to-person -person transmission and decreasing, keeping the contact rates decrease by minimizing groups and meetings, which is now at this point 25 for indoor and 100 for outdoor. Next slide. And so there are challenges. And, and so where we're at right now and what are the future threats? So we're in a pretty good place. We're coming down on our curve. I think yesterday or the day before yesterday is the first time we had less than 100 hospitalizations in the whole state you know, since the beginning of the epidemic. But there are, are future issues, and, and these are things that keep all of us up at, at night. One is the issue of res, res, uh, wrapping up testing. Uh, our goal was to get up to 100,000, if not 140,000 tests per, per, uh, per, per week, so that we could actually reopen our Connecticut uh, safely, but testing intensively so that we can, we can um, uh, prevent transmission. One of the major issues there is really just get, not necessarily the laboratory capacity, now that we have Jackson Lab, Semaphore, um, and Yale New Haven Hospital working side by side with, you know, with, with the healthcare systems, also with um, the demand that's provided by commercial labs, uh, but like Quest and LabCorp. But the issue is getting out to the community and getting people to come in and get tested if they're not feeling well, whether it's with you know, fatigue, headache, um, what call it, uh, respiratory uh, cough, shortness of breath, fever, and, and so forth. And that's been a real challenge. It's a challenge not only here in Connecticut, but throughout, throughout the country, that we able to test people you know, in, with high resolution and densely so that we can monitor signals, you know, do outbreak, you know, control outbreaks and prevent, prevent uh, resurgences by um, in decreasing the uh, amount of transmission in the community. 
Um, you know, I think the procurement challenges PPE remain the same. I'm, we're particularly worried about what's going to happen next influenza season. Um, you know, we do have citizens who are reluctant to resume normal activity. We've opened up restaurants. We've opened up retail stores. There's still, if I walk through New Haven, many of these still are, you know, either staying closed or, you know, certainly reduced volumes. Um, I think the biggest issue that we're worried about is the lack of compliance with safety guidelines and intervention policies. And that's particularly, and this follows risk behaviors for many other diseases, whether they're STDs, HIV, you know, and so forth. Next slide. And I think it's just one picture tells a thousand words. Uh, this was spring break. Um, these are Texas students. I think there's a little bit of this in, in Connecticut students, but it's really the behaviors of young people. And you can see that walking around our cities. You know, people walking around without uh, masks, they're usually the younger people rather than the middle-aged or the elderly people. And if we're going to have a resurgence, this is the group, risk group that we're going to have to think about how we're going to have targeted, um, what do you call it, uh, interventions to reduce their role as potential reservoirs. Uh, next slide. Then I think where we're thinking about resurgences, so what's that going to, you know, what, how's that going to play out and what's that going to look like? You know, and, and so there's certainly one scenario where we, we're, I think it's all the general consensus that we're going to have low level endemic transmission. We are still having transmission here in Connecticut. Okay, we will never eliminate or eradicate COVID either from Connecticut or from the United, from the United States until, you know, more effective public health prevention such as vaccines will occur. But one of the issues that's going to come out is what would, you know, we're at high risk for a resurgence. Next slide. I think it's in the, uh, and, and this is, I'm not going to go into detail, but this is work from a modeling group led by Forrest Crawford at the Yale School of Public Health. Even in the most optimistic scenario where we are having slow return to normal contact, where we're still in placing gradual steps, opening up social contact while maintaining strong social distancing we're still at a risk of a resurgence. And if we, if we have increased contact, we'll have certainly a much greater resurgence. We're doing right now a statewide seroprevalence survey, which is led by Harlan Krumholtz at Yale School of Public Health. This is with the Gallup poll and Quest Laboratories. We'll have an understanding of how much, how ma how much of the uh, kinetic population was, um, was exposed. But my gut guess is it's going to be like six to eight percent, perhaps 10 percent. So we had that large epidemic, 45,000 cases, 4,500 uh, uh, deaths, you know, just with the infection of less than 10 percent of our population. So we're at risk for a resurgence. Next slide. So that, that, that resurgence, how is that going to happen? It could be small outbreaks that occur that grow within the state. Next slide. I think we're, we're really worried about you know, and we, you know, we've learned this lesson uh, in the past, and that's introductions from other places. Certainly, the foci of our introduction was New York City. Um, you know, given our commuting, work, and travel, you know, travel practices, uh, I think rightfully so. The governor made a, a very important decision, together with Governors Murphy and, and Cuomo, in, uh, in in restricting travel and requiring. Well, not restricting travel, but requiring quarantine from all people who come from these hot zone states with over 10, over 10,000 cases, you know, that have been ident identified. There are about 14 states at, at this moment. And it was a very wise decision because that's what, that's one scenario and really a likely scenario 
of how we're going to have a, a resurgence. Next slide. And I think the last thing is really thinking about, you know, um, when we're thinking about trying to get back to normalcy, I mean, probably the best criteria, and I'm using Indra Nui's criteria, the best criteria of whether we have sex success, you know, with our reopen Connecticut and with our public health prevention is whether we're going to, you know, is, if we're going to be able to have kids come back to school, K to 12, as well as college and, and, and universities. And that's in the fall. And, and, you know, you can imagine in those congregate settings, whether the residential dorms or with their classrooms and so forth, you know, that contact certainly can be, you know, a source of, of increased transmission and importantly transmission to, to elderly people, people who are at risk at high, high complications and, and, and fatality in multi-generational homes, in our, in our, uh, in our densely crowded, um, uh, you know, community, urban communities. Next slide. So I think with that, I think I want to go back to some of the guiding principles. Um, you know, we have that cartoon. This is David Vlaha from um, Yale School of Nursing who sent me that. You know, we're all gingerly thinking about what July holds for us, what August holds for us, and importantly, what September, you know, holds for us when we want our kids to come back to school, you know, and make up for the lost time they have in their development, in, in their learning. And I think it goes back to these guiding principles. We still have to be science-driven. And in the morass that we are in as a nation, you know, uh, we need to, at least in Connecticut, maintain that, you know, that, that policy is evidence-based, it's driven by science. And that's, I think, you know, we've always had buy-in from day one from the governor and, uh, and, and the legislature and the, and the um, executive branch. Um, and I think the rest of the ones I think are going to be really kind of the principles as we're going to have to go calibrate back and forth. Many of us seen what's happening in South Korea and China, you know, in Singapore, where they're having to turn on, ramp it up a little bit, or toggle it up a little bit and toggle it down. That's probably going to be our life when we come, you know, until we get an efficacious or effective um, uh, public health intervention, whether it's vaccines and those may come in order to get those on board, those may take, take, take several years. Next slide. So I want to stop end by just really thanking, first of all, the governor uh, in his, uh, you know, for his support and for convening this really remarkable group. Uh, most of all, Indra Nui, her wisdom really led the way in, in, in really coming up with a plan which was very different from all the states and I think had unique features that make us you know, uh, I think hopefully more safer and we, you know, uh, than, than, than we were certainly during the epidemic and certainly compared to other states. And really the large number of people who contributed to this, this process on the committee, everybody on day one on April 13th dropped everything working 20 hours a day, seven days of work week until May 20th. That group, this group has disbanded, you know, was disbanded on May 20th when we did our job. I am still staying on as a special advisor to the governor you know, for, um, you know, COVID specific uh, uh, questions, but this was really quite a privilege to be at, uh, working with this group. Now I've gone over quite a bit and let me hand it back to you, um, Juan, and uh, apologies for, for um, uh, taking, to, uh, taking more time and, and less time for the questions. Thank you, Albert. <clears throat> that was truly remarkable. And I, uh, you know, I want to thank you on behalf of the citizens of Connecticut for 
for your work. Um, I know your work ethic. Uh, you've always been a, somebody who works 24-7, and, uh, and, and I know this has challenged you even further, but you've done it with just amazing uh, intelligence and grace and uh, on behalf of the people of Connecticut. So thank you very much and for keeping us safe and sound. I really have to congratulate you on, on amazing work. It, I can see the, the hand and, and the, the scientific hand uh, behind this with care. Uh, so thank you. Um, just before we go to the questions, I just want, there were a couple things I forgot to mention uh, that uh, our Mach 10 fourth quarter winner uh, on the medical side is Beth Nat, and on the surgical side is Richard Weiss. Congratulations to them. Albert, that's a prize we give for people who actually log in uh, to almost all of these grand rounds, and so we, we, we send them a $10,000 check. Oh, no, that was, that was last year. I forget that. We, so uh, thank you. So here are the, the questions, uh, and there are a number of them. We won't be able to answer all of them, but uh, this is from uh, Dr. Zellneritis, uh, one of our uh, pediatric neurologists and uh, our residency program director. And uh, the question reads, mitigation strategies for SARS-CoV were associated with an almost immediate end to ongoing, the ongoing and annually expected surge of influenza and RSV. Do our lessons from SARS-CoV-2 mitigation have implications for future intervention for influenza and RSV? Okay, so, um, you know, we would hope so. We would hope so. But, uh, uh, and, and, and there may be some glimmer of hope on that. Uh, RSV and influenza, certainly the transmissibility is less. So they may be more susceptible to some of the, um, you know, so social distancing and face mask in face mask use uh, in, in that sense. Um, you know, the, the, the big question is going to be whether we can still get it right for COVID and, you know, so that you would have that kind of spillover, spillover effect for um, RSV and influenza. I, I'm just, I think all of us, and I think, you know, are just worried what's going to happen next, next November, December, January, February. Great. Uh, from Leon Kamaitis, uh, uh, esteemed uh, honorary member of our faculty, cardiologist, says, I note that one of the goals is to test students in schools. My understanding is that the plan for reopening the Hartford schools does not include student testing. Comments on that? All right. So, so um, uh, two things. And let's just think about what was done for colleges and what's done for our K-12, including our daycare. The best solution for you know, K to 12 is protecting the communities that we're having. And that's doing community-wide testing or statewide testing for symptomatics and really using large mass, mass uh, large-scale testing in the communities that have high risk and being flexible and adaptive about this. The one thing that we have to be careful about in this epidemic is not to get into lock and load and not to just get, you know, focused on, we're gonna have to learn every week on this you know, getting our informatics, our analytics up so that we can be flexible and put testing where it's needed, you know, in, in order to do that. So for K to 12, the goal is to reduce community-wide tr transmission. The problem is going to be our kids that are going into Yukon or Connecticut State or a place like Wesleyan or Yale or so forth that are in these congregate settings. And we already learned that lesson with nursing homes and prisons. Congregate settings are, a, you know, a foci for outbreaks. You just get a single point source in a direction, you're going to have huge outbreaks. And so the testing plan, in you, you know, last week, Marco Jakin and the, the state, Deirdre Gifford, the commissioners, you know, came up with a plan, you know, plan for that. Because of time, I won't go into that. But those are two very different epidemiological uh, settings which require two different, you know, solutions. 
Thank you, Albert. Uh, uh, this is from one of our pediatricians. I noted uh, that several of your slides included plans for testing of asymptomatic healthcare workers. Is this in place at Yale New Haven and will we be doing this at Connecticut Children's? And so I, I can answer the, the, the Connecticut Children's in a second, but what is your recommendation for healthcare settings in terms of uh, testing? Yeah, okay, so, so I think uniformly, almost all healthcare systems are testing all the patients that come in. So we wanna keep the hospital safe. We wanna get any congregate setting, we wanna keep the hospital safe. Uh, we wanna keep congregate settings safe. The best way is to have them tested as they come in. We do this in correctional facilities. If an inmate comes in, they get tested. If an inmate goes out, they get tested. In nursing homes, we're testing nursing home residents. The question with healthcare workers is, is whether the juice is worth the squeeze, right? Um, now that community-wide, the biggest threat, now that most, you know, we, we, I, I've been walking around Yale New Haven Hospital. A lot of people aren't you know, at the nurses' stations and, you know, the cafeteria. They have to eat. So, not, you know, people aren't wearing masks. They're kind of close together. So, adherence is going to be a big problem. But pretty much during the epidemic, we did a good job protecting, you know, uh, you know transmission with PPE. The big issue is going to be, you know, those introductions. So, Yale New Haven Hospital, you know, you know they've uh, the recommendation to the, to the Connecticut Health Association you know, with the guidances of, of the state, you know, um, uh, Department of Public Health was to do a point prevalence survey of 25% of, of all healthcare workers to know where we stand, okay? And that's been done in pretty much, and those, been, those have been done in those hospitals that have the, and have been taking care of COVID patients. So I believe it wasn't done at Connecticut Children's Medical Accounts, uh, Medical Center for that reason. And pretty much the results are that we're having identifying, like Yale New Haven Hospital did about 10,000 uh, healthcare workers screened in about 24, they identified 24. So that's a pretty small percentage. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they identified 27 or something like that. And that comes to like 0.25%, the amount. Um, so that sounds like pretty, pretty small numbers. But if you think about it, you know, that's a point prevalence. Let's say PCR positivity is two weeks. So if we had the same rates as we're having now in, in roughly, um, I think in roughly one year, we would probably have about six or 7% of healthcare workers infected. So the question is, is that tolerable? Is that a threshold that hospitals and the state should accept or not? Even though the overall point prevalence was low and that's a decision that's gonna be discussed. And again, as I reiterate, we, we have to, or emphasize, we have to learn. We can't be lock and load. We have to do. We have to do this point prevalence survey. Think about it, then figure out what the next step is, rather than just saying we're going to go and do one one thing for the future. Yeah, thanks, Albert. And we, we're actually starting a, uh, a point prevalence study in uh, individuals that were in our special isolation unit. So, about 200 uh, individuals will be testing doing the PCR and perhaps antibody, and then we'll see where, where we go and whether we need to repeat it in six weeks or eight weeks. So we'll learn about that. And I, something we've learned with the COVID time is that it, what we say today, you know, we do it scientifically based, but tomorrow may be a little bit different. And so we have to be nimble and change. Um, I just have a couple more questions. And then a, a lot of these questions we won't be able to answer. It looked, you have about 20 people asking questions. Um, this is more practical. This is uh, from Mary Simon, one of our pediatricians. I've already had several suspect patients refuse to go for testing because it hurts. 
or I don't want my child to undergo that painful procedure. How do you address this when we're trying to increase identification by more widespread testing without being, uh, without testing being mandated? So any practical comments on that issue? Yeah, no, I got, I got you. And that's an important issue, right? And certainly it's important for the pediatric population where nasopharyngeal swabs are just much more uncomfortable than they are. They're, they're uncomfortable for adults as well. Uh, so I think one is, as many of you know, and I don't have to tell, you know, the, this, you know, your, your, your staff of uh, physicians, but, you know, really, uh, you know, talking and understanding and letting the, you know, the, the, the families and the parents know why this is important, you know, uh, in, in dealing with that. It's not a morbid, nasopharyngeal swab is not a morbid, you know, process, but I think that requires time. The second is to do better and to get better tests than nasopharyngeal swabs. So right now, and there's somewhat of a debate, and this is probably one, of, it's just crazy after six months of this pandemic, we still don't know what's the best, you know, basic questions about like, is nasal swabs just as good as nasopharyngeal swabs? Uh, there's some evidence for, and there's some evidence against. I think probably at this point, most people would think that nasal swabs or anterior nasal swabs are probably less sensitive than nasopharyngeal swabs but probably more, certainly more acceptable when you're doing you know, repetitive screening. Uh, there's this whole issue about, can you do mid-turbinate swabs? That's another. We've been working at Yale and uh, our, our team in our department, several investigators have been working on saliva, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, as a method. And actually the state semaphore, uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, they've gotten EUA approval for testing saliva. And so we're looking, this is led by Charles Lee, at Jack, director of Jackson Labs, who's really one of the heroes of this whole story, who stood up this whole network. Um, you know, the, um, and hopefully a book will be written about what, you know, this whole, you know, what, what was done in Charles and his, his contributions. But, you know, they're, they're really looking to do saliva and actually pooling saliva for these tests so they'd just be much more acceptable. Yeah, no, Charles is, uh, is not only a good friend, but, you know, like, like you, just an amazing individual. So we, we're very lucky in Connecticut to have uh, people like you and Charles. It's, uh, we're blessed. Um, I have just one more, one more question. And uh, it, it, tell us a little bit about the, you know, there are these rapid antigen tests, which are much easier. You know, you do it point of care. I mean, that's uh, any, any, any use for those. I know they're probably less sensitive, but is there any use to that if it's a simple test as opposed to the actual PCR can't get cartridges, you know, Cephi, it's a backlog, et cetera. The, you know, the JAX lab uh, test is good. It's six hours. Still, you know, still the turnaround is not easy. So rapid tests, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so the rapid test, now, I believe, let's see, there was one uh, EUA approved rapid test. There may come up to a second. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, there are a couple things. One is the sensitivity. The big problem here is, is that we don't have good, so EA approval is like, you know, uh, a, a kind of one of the lowest bars, right? You, you do 30 tests, right? You, you know, you do 30 positives and 30 negatives and you get EUA approval. And even that's still difficult and slow to get from FDA, you know. But the big issue is doing really good, rigorous comparison trials, um, you know, of, of these tests to really, to get I, in, with well-characterized patients so we know what the sensitivity and specificity of these tests. And the problem is, is that we have an imperfect gold standard, which is nasal pharyngeal swaps, which is very user dependent. Uh, the second problem is, is that, you know, getting people to work together 
and share their patients and things and getting is, is a problem. The antigen test probably will turn out to be, until we get those good, you know, solid evidence. You know, I think early on, it looks like it's gonna be less sensitive. Yeah. How much less sensitive, it's not clear, whether it's 50% sensitive or 60%, 70%. So then the question comes, what is the, par you know, the, the test characteristics of a test that's gonna be useful? Uh, for not only, you know, and this is going to be pretty much not only just clinical diagnosis, but this is going to be for contact tracing and isolation. We're probably going to need contact tracing with a test that's less than 70% sensitive is probably not going to be effective. Now, if you use that antigen test on weekly, let's say college students, and I think, I believe Connecticut College is going to be doing this. If they're going to be using antigen tests every week on students, there may be a benefit for a test that has 50, 60, 70% you know, okay. sensitivity. Um, but you know, that still comes out. There's several ones that are going through EUA approval. The problem with the one that got EUA approved is that you have to use their special apparatus, right? So it's not exactly point of care, right? right? right. It's not like you do it and it's point of care. So there's still hurdles that need to be um, okay, thank you, Albert. It's, uh, it's, we've extended your time, and you probably have a governor's probably calling you now to, uh, to have your, your morning briefing. So uh, thank you very much for uh, taking time out of your very, very busy life. Uh, also extend my thanks to your wife for letting you do this. Um, <laughs> that's probably the, you know, the most important thing at this, at this time. Uh, and uh, we're very proud of what you have done and what you're doing for Connecticut. I really, really appreciate it. And for the audience, uh, thank you for joining us. This is the last Grand Rounds of the season. We'll begin back again in the first week in September. Uh, we hope to have you there. It's still going to be virtual uh, due to COVID-19. I think this has worked really well. Send us your comments and questions on how we can do better. Truly appreciate it. Uh, fantastic. Thank you to, uh, to Nicole, to Liz, uh, Philip, Steve, who are behind the cameras here, uh, and, and to all of you for joining us. Uh, we'll see you on Friday for the Ask the Experts session, and we'll have a little more. So again, uh, thank you, Albert. Have a great day, and we'll see you again. Bye-bye, everyone. Take care.